Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for visiting us tonight. This evening we'll be continuing with To the Lighthouse. But before we turn to our next page, take a moment to get comfortable and snug. Give yourself a nice, big stretch to release any tension in your muscles. Become aware of how each part of your body feels. From your toes, to your legs, your back, your stomach, across your shoulders and arms, your neck, and all the muscles in your face. If you feel any areas that have any extra tension, give them a squeeze and release them to help them relax. Take a meaningful, deep breath in. Hold it at the top. And then exhale, breathing away any remaining thoughts cluttering your mind. Once more now, inhale and exhale. Repeat this as many times as you need to as I recap our last episode. Last time, The candles were lit in the dining room and the main course was served. Mrs. Ramsay's French beef casserole seemed to bring everyone together. William Banks congratulated her on her meal and she could feel his admiration return to her. Everyone settled into more genial conversation. Minta sat by Mr. Ramsay and had charmed him too into banter and gaiety. Paul, who had come in late with Minta, sat by Mrs. Ramsay. She couldn't outwardly ask, but she very much suspected they were now engaged. Paul told Lily he'd determined to go back to the beach early in the morning to find Minta's brooch, and Lily longed to go with him just to be part of it conversation ebbed and flowed. Often Mrs. Ramsay didn't understand the topics discussed, especially between the men. She allowed it to wash over her and just enjoyed the sound of it all. Chapter 
till she heard her husband reciting a piece of poetry. Everyone had stilled to listen. She rose from her seat, just as Mr. Carmichael picked up the last line and delivered it directly to her as she passed, with a bow. Grateful and relieved for the kind gesture, at last, she returned the bow and took Minta by the arm. That's where we pick up tonight, the dinner party dispersing for the evening. So, lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 1 The Lighthouse Chapter 18 As usual, Lily thought, there was always something that had to be done at that precise moment, something that Mrs. Ramsay had decided, for reasons of her own, to do instantly. It might be with everyone standing about making jokes, as now, not being able to decide whether they were going into the smoking room, into the drawing room, up to the attics. Then one saw Mrs. Ramsay in the midst of this hubbub, standing there with Minta's arm in hers, bethink her, yes, it's time for that now, and so make off at once with an air of secrecy to do something alone. And directly she went, a sort of disintegration set in. They wavered about, went different ways. Mr. Banks took Charles Tansley by the arm and went off to finish on the terrace the discussion they had begun at dinner about politics, thus giving a turn to the whole poise of the evening, making the weight fall in a different direction, as if, Lily thought, seeing them go, and hearing a word or two about the policy of the Labour Party, they had gone up onto the bridge of a ship and were taking their bearings. The change from poetry to politics struck her like that. So Mr. Banks and Charles, Mrs. Ramsay going upstairs in the lamplight alone. Where, Lily wondered, was she going so quickly? Not that she did, in fact, run or hurry. She went, indeed, rather slowly. She felt rather inclined, just for a moment, to stand still after all that chatter and pick out one particular thing, the thing that mattered, to detach it, separate it off, clean it of all the emotions and odds and ends of things, and so hold it before her and bring it to the tribunal where, ranged about in conclave, sat the judges she had set up to decide these things. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right or wrong? Where are we all going to? And so on. So she righted herself after the shock of the event, and quite unconsciously and incongruously used the branches of the elm trees outside to help her to stabilize her position. Her world was changing 
and they were still. The event had given her a sense of movement. All must be in order. She must get that right and that right, she thought, insensibly approving of the dignity of the trees, stillness, and now again of the superb upward rise, like the beak of a ship up a wave, of the elm branches as the wind raised them, for it was windy. She stood a moment to look out. It was windy so that the leaves now and then brushed open a star, and the stars themselves seemed to be shaking and darting light and trying to flash out between the edges of the leaves. Yes, that was done then, accomplished, and as with all things done, became solemn. Now one thought of it, cleared of chatter and emotion, seemed always to have been, only was shown now, and so being shown, struck everything into stability. They would, she thought, going on again, however long they lived, come back to this night, this moon, this wind, this house, and to her too. It flattered her, where she was most susceptible of flattery, to think how, wound about in their hearts, however long they lived, she would be woven. And this, and this, and this, she thought, going upstairs, laughing, but affectionately at the sofa on the landing, her mother's, at the rocking chair, her father's, at the map of the Hebrides. All that would be revived again in the lives of Paul and Minter, the Rayleighs. She tried the new name over, and she felt with her hand on the nursery door that community of feeling with other people, which emotion gives as if the walls of partition had become so thin that practically the feeling was one of relief and happiness. It was all one stream, and chairs, tables, maps were hers, were theirs. It did not matter whose, and Paul and Minta would carry it on when she was dead. She turned the handle firmly, lest it should squeak, and went in, pursing her lips slightly, as if to remind herself that she must not speak aloud. But directly she came in, she saw with annoyance that the precaution was not needed. The children were not asleep. It was most annoying. Mildred should be more careful. There was James, wide awake, and Cam sitting bolt upright, and Mildred out of her bed in her bare feet, and it was almost eleven, and they were all talking. What was the matter? It was that horrid skull again. She had told Mildred to move it, but Mildred, of course, had forgotten, and now there was Cam, wide awake, and James, wide awake, quarrelling when they ought to have been asleep hours ago. What had possessed Edward to send them this horrid skull? She'd been so foolish as to let them nail it up there. It was nailed fast, Mildred said, and Cam couldn't go to sleep with it in the room, and James screamed if she touched it. Then Cam must go to sleep. It had great horns, said Cam. 
must go to sleep and dream of lovely palaces, said Mrs. Ramsay, sitting down on the bed by her side. She could see the horns, Cam said, all over the room. It was true, wherever they put the light, and James could not sleep without a light, there was always a shadow somewhere. But think, Cam, it's only an old pig, said Mrs. Ramsay. A nice black pig, like the pigs at the farm. But Cam thought it was a horrid thing, branching at her all over the room. Well then, said Mrs. Ramsay, we will cover it up. And they all watched her go to the chest of drawers and open the little drawers quickly one after another. Not seeing anything that would do, she quickly took her own shawl off and wound it round the skull. Round and round and round and round. And then she came back to Cam and laid her head almost flat on the pillow beside Cam's and said how lovely it looked now. How the fairies would love it. It was like a bird's nest. It was like a beautiful mountain such as she had seen abroad valleys and flowers and bells ringing and birds singing and little goats and antelopes and she could see the words echoing as she spoke them rhythmically in Cam's mind and Cam was repeating after her how it was like a mountain a bird's nest a garden and there were little antelopes and her eyes were opening and shutting. And Mrs. Ramsay went on speaking still more monotonously, and more rhythmically, and more nonsensically, how she must shut her eyes, and go to sleep, and dream of mountains, and valleys, and stars falling, and parrots, and antelopes, and gardens, and everything lovely, she said, raising her head very slowly, and speaking more and more mechanically, until she sat upright, and saw that Cam was asleep. Now, she whispered, crossing over to his bed, James must go to sleep too. For see, she said, the boar's skull was still there. They had not touched it. They had just done what it wanted. It was there quite unhurt. He made sure that the skull was still there under the shawl, but he wanted to ask her something more. Would they go to the lighthouse tomorrow? No, not tomorrow, she said, but soon. She promised him. The next fine day. He was very good. He lay down. She covered him up, but he would never forget, she knew. And she felt angry with Charles Tansley, with her husband and with herself, for she had raised his hopes. Then, feeling for her shawl and remembering she had wrapped it around the bull's skull, she got up and pulled the window down another inch or two heard the wind and got a breath of the perfectly indifferent chill night air, murmured goodnight to Mildred and left the room 
and let the tongue of the door slowly lengthen in the lock and went out. She hoped he would not bang his books on the floor above their heads, she thought, still thinking how annoying Charles Tansley was. For neither of them slept well. They were excitable children, and since he said things like that about the lighthouse, it seemed to her likely that he would knock a pile of books over just as they were going to sleep, clumsily sweeping them off the table with his elbow, for she supposed that he had gone upstairs to work. Yet he looked so desolate that she would feel relieved when he went, yet that she would see that he was better treated tomorrow. Yet he was admirable with her husband. Yet his manners certainly wanted improving. Yet she liked his laugh. Thinking this as she came downstairs, she noticed that she could now see the moon itself through the staircase window. The yellow harvest moon. And turned, and they saw her, standing above them on the stairs. That's my mother, thought Prue. Yes, Minta should look at her. Paul Rayleigh should look at her. That is the thing itself, she felt, as if there were only one person like that in the world. Her mother. And from having been quite grown up a moment before, talking with the others, she became a child again. And what they had been doing was a game. And would her mother sanction their game or condemn it, she wondered. And thinking what a chance it was for Minta and Paul and Lily to see her. And feeling what an extraordinary stroke of fortune it was for her to have her. And how she would never grow up and never leave home, she said, like a child. We thought of going down to the beach to watch the waves. Instantly, for no reason at all, Mrs. Ramsay became like a girl of twenty, full of gaiety. A mood of revelry suddenly took possession of her. Of course they must go. Of course they must go, she cried, laughing and running down the last three or four steps, quickly. She began turning from one to the other, and laughing, and drawing Minta's wrap round her and saying she only wished she could come too, and would they be very late, and had any of them got a watch? Yes, Paul has, said Minta. Paul slipped a beautiful gold watch out of a little wash leather case to show her, and as he held it in the palm of his hand before her, he felt, she knows all about it, I need not say anything. He was saying to her as he showed her the watch, done it, Mrs. Ramsay. I owe it all to you. And seeing the gold watch lying in his hand, Mrs. Ramsay felt how extraordinarily lucky Minta is. She's marrying a man who has a gold watch in a wash leather bag. How I wish I could come with you, she cried. But she was withheld by something so strong that she had never even thought of asking herself what it was course it was impossible for her to go with them. She would have liked to go, had it not been for the other thing. And tickled by the absurdity of her thought, how lucky to marry a man with a wash leather bag for his watch, 
she went with a smile on her lips into the other room, where her husband sat, reading. Chapter 19 Of course, she said to herself, coming into the room. She had to come here to get something she wanted. First, she wanted to sit down in a particular chair, under a particular lamp. But she wanted something more, though she did not know, could not think what it was that she wanted. She looked at her husband, taking up her stocking and beginning to knit, and saw that he did not want to be interrupted. That was clear. He was reading something that moved him very much. He was half smiling, and then she knew he was controlling his emotion. He was tossing the pages over. He was acting it. Perhaps he was thinking himself the person in the book. She wondered what book it was. Oh, it was one of old Sir Walter's she saw, adjusting the shade of her lamp so that the light fell on her knitting. Charles Tansley had been saying, she looked up as if she expected to hear the crash of books on the floor above, had been saying that people don't read Scott anymore. Then her husband thought, that's what they'll say of me, so he went and got one of those books. And if he came to the conclusion, that's true of what Charles Tansley said, he would accept it about Scott. She could see that he was weighing, considering, putting this with that as he read, but not about himself. He was always uneasy about himself. That troubled her. He would always be worrying about his own books. Will they be read? Are they good? Why aren't they better? What do people think of me? Not liking to think of him so, and wondering if they had guessed at dinner why he suddenly became irritable when they talked about fame and books lasting. Wondering if the children were laughing at that, she twitched the stockings out, and all the fine gravings came drawn with steel instruments about her lips and forehead, and she grew still like a tree which has been tossing and quivering, and now when the breeze falls, settles, leaf by leaf, into quiet. It didn't matter, any of it, she thought. A great man, a great book, fame, who could tell? She knew nothing about it, but it was his way with him, his truthfulness. For instance, at dinner, she had been thinking quite instinctively, if only he would speak. She had complete trust in him. And dismissing all this as one passes in diving now a weed, now a straw, now a bubble, she felt again sinking deeper as she had felt in the hall when the others were talking. There is something I want, something I have come to get. And she fell deeper and deeper without knowing quite what it was, with her eyes closed. And she waited a little, knitting, wondering, 
and slowly rose those words they had said at dinner. The china rose is all abloom and buzzing with the honeybee, began washing from side to side of her mind rhythmically. And as they washed, words like little shaded lights, one red, one blue, one yellow, lit up in the dark of her mind and seemed leaving their perches up there to fly across and across or to cry out and to be echoed. So she turned and felt on the table beside her for a book. And all the lives we ever lived and all the lives to be are full of trees and changing leaves, she murmured, sticking her needles into the stocking. And as she opened the book and began reading here and there at random, and as she did so, she felt that she was climbing backwards, upwards, shoving her way up under petals that curved over her, so that she only knew this is white or this is red. She did not know at first what the words meant at all. Steer, hither steer your winged pines, all beaten mariners. She read and turned the page, swinging herself, zigzagging this way and that, from one line to another, as from one branch to another, from one red and white flower to another, until a little sound roused her, her husband slapping his thighs. Their eyes met for a second, but they did not want to speak to each other. They had nothing to say, but something seemed nevertheless to go from him to her. It was the life. It was the power of it. It was the tremendous humor she knew that made him slap his thighs. Don't interrupt me, he seemed to be saying. Don't say anything. Just sit there. And he went on reading. His lips twitched. It filled him. It fortified him. He clean forgot all the little rubs and digs of the evening and how it bored him unutterably to sit still while people ate and drank interminably. And his being so irritable with his wife and so touchy and minding when they passed his books over as if they didn't exist at all. But now he felt it didn't matter who reached Z if thought ran like an alphabet from A to Z. Somebody would reach it. If not he, then another. This man's strength and sanity, his feeling for straightforward, simple things, these fishermen, the poor old crazed creature in Mucklebacket's cottage, made him feel so vigorous, so relieved of something that he felt roused and triumphant could not choke back his tears. Raising the book a little to hide his face, he let them fall and shook his head from side to side and forgot himself completely. But not one or two reflections about morality and French novels 
and English novels, and Scott's hands being tied, but his view perhaps being as true as the other view. Forgot his own bothers and failures completely in poor Steenie's drowning and Muckleback's sorrow. That was Scott at his best. And the astonishing delight and feeling of vigor that it gave him. Well, let him improve upon that, he thought, as he finished the chapter. He felt that he had been arguing with somebody and had got the better of him. They could not improve upon that, whatever they might say, and his own position became more secure. The lovers were fiddlesticks, he thought, collecting it all in his mind again. That's fiddlesticks. That's first rate, he thought, putting one thing beside the other. But he must read it again. He could not remember the whole shape of the thing. He had to keep his judgment in suspense. So he returned to the other thought. If young men did not care for this, naturally, they did not care for him either. One ought not to complain, thought Mr. Ramsay, trying to stifle his desire to complain to his wife that young men did not admire him. But he was determined. He would not bother her again. Here he looked at her, reading. She looked very peaceful reading. He liked to think that everyone had taken themselves off, and that he and she were alone. The whole of life did not consist in going to bed with a woman, he thought, returning to Scott and Balzac, to the English novel and the French novel. Mrs. Ramsay raised her head, and like a person in a light sleep seemed to say that if he wanted her to wake, she would. She really would. But otherwise, might she go on sleeping just a little longer? Just a little longer? She was climbing up those branches, this way and that, laying hands on one flower and then another. Nor praise the deep vermilion in the rose, she read. And so reading, she was ascending, she felt, onto the top, onto the summit. How satisfying. How restful. All the odds and ends of the day stuck to this magnet. Her mind felt swept, felt clean. And then there it was, suddenly entire. She held it in her hands, beautiful and reasonable, clear and complete here. The sonnet. But she was becoming conscious of her husband looking at her. He was smiling at her quizzically, as if he were ridiculing her gently for being asleep in broad daylight. But at the same time, he was thinking, go on reading. You don't look sad now, he thought. And he wondered what she was reading and exaggerated her ignorance, her simplicity. For he liked to think that she was not clever, not book-learned at all. He wondered if she understood what she was reading. Probably not, he thought. She was astonishingly beautiful. Her beauty seemed to him 
if that were possible, to increase. Yet seemed it winter still, and you away, as with your shadow I with these did play, she finished. Well, she said, echoing his smile dreamily, looking up from her book. As with your shadow, I with these did play, she murmured, putting the book on the table. What had happened, she wondered, as she took up her knitting, since she had seen him alone. She remembered dressing, and seeing the moon, Andrew holding his plate too high at dinner, being depressed by something William had said, the birds in the trees, the sofa on the landing, the children being awake, Charles Tansley waking them with his books falling, oh no, that she had invented, and Paul having a wash leather case for his watch. Which should she tell him about? They're engaged, she said, beginning to knit. Paul and Minta. So I guessed, he said. There was nothing very much to be said about it. Her mind was still going up and down, up and down with the poetry. He was still feeling very vigorous, very forthright after reading about Steenie's funeral. So they sat silent. Then she became aware that she wanted him to say something. Anything. Anything, she thought, going on with her knitting. Anything will do. How nice it would be to marry a man with a wash leather bag for his watch, she said, for that was the sort of joke they had together. He snorted. He felt about this engagement as he always felt about any engagement. The girl is much too good for that young man. Slowly it came into her head. Why is it then that one wants people to marry? What's the value, the meaning of things? Every word they said now would be true. Do say something, she thought, wishing only to hear his voice. For the shadow, the thing folding them in was beginning, she felt, to close round her again. Say anything, she begged, looking at him, as if for help. He was silent, swinging the compass on his watch chain to and fro, and thinking of Scott's novels and Balzac's novels. But through the crepuscular walls of their intimacy, for they were drawing together involuntarily, coming side by side quite close. She could feel his mind like a raised hand shadowing her mind, and he was beginning, now that her thoughts took a turn he disliked, towards this pessimism, as he called it, to fidget, though he said nothing, raising his hand to his forehead, twisting a lock of hair, letting it fall again. You won't finish that stocking tonight, he said, pointing to her stocking. That was what she wanted, the asperity in his voice reproving her. 
He says it's wrong to be pessimistic. Probably it is wrong, she thought. The marriage will turn out all right. No, she said, flattening the stocking upon her knee. I shan't finish it. And what then? For she felt that he was still looking at her, but that his look had changed. He wanted something. Wanted the thing she always found it so difficult to give him. Wanted her to tell him that she loved him. And that no, she could not do. He found talking so much easier than she did. He could say things. She never could. So naturally, it was always he that said the things, and then for some reason he would mind this suddenly and would reproach her. A heartless woman, he called her. She never told him that she loved him. But it was not so. It was not so. It it was only that she could never say what she felt. Was there no crumb on his coat? Nothing she could do for him. Getting up, she stood at the window with the reddish-brown stocking in her hands, partly to turn away from him, partly because she remembered how beautiful it often is, the scene at night. But she knew that he had turned his head as she had turned. He was watching her. She knew that he was thinking, you are more beautiful than ever. She felt herself very beautiful. Will you not tell me just for once that you love me? He was thinking that, for he was roused, but with Minta and his book, and it's being the end of the day, and they're having quarrelled about going to the lighthouse. But she could not do it. She could not say it. Then, knowing he was watching her, instead of saying anything, she turned, holding her stocking, and looked at him. And as she looked at him, she began to smile. For though she had not said a word, he knew, of course he knew that she loved him. He could not deny it. And smiling, she looked out of the window and said, thinking to herself, nothing on earth can equal this happiness. Yes, you were right. It's going to be wet tomorrow. You won't be able to go. And she looked at him, smiling. She had triumphed again. She had not said it. Yet he knew. End of part one.